Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the murder of the leader of the opposition in Russia, Alexei Navalny, who Putin's FSB almost killed with a nerve agent in 2020, then had him incarcerated in gulags on trumped-up charges. Joining us is a close friend of Boris Nemtsov, the former leader of the Russian opposition who preceded Navalny. He was assassinated just outside the Kremlin on Putin's orders, and we will speak with Dr. Ariel Cohen, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a recognized authority on international security and energy policy, and a leading expert on Russia, Eurasia, and the Middle East. He is also a senior fellow at the International Tax and Investment Center, where he heads the Energy Growth and Security Program. The author of six books, his latest is Hour of Truth, The Conflict in Ukraine, Implications for Europe's Energy Security, and the Lessons for the U.S. Army. Then we're looking to Speaker Mike Johnson's move to shut down the government for a month to avoid congressional action on the Pfizer renewal and aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, just as the Ukrainians are running out of ammunition. Joining us to discuss why Christian nationalists like Johnson admire Putin is James Risen, a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author whose investigative reporting has triggered a series of political firestorms, in particular for revealing unwarranted NSA wiretaps. Among his best-selling books are State of War, The Secret History of the CIA and the Bush Administration, and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power, and Endless War. The senior national security correspondent at The Intercept and a former investigative journalist with The New York Times, his new book is the Last Honest Man, the CIA, the FBI, the Mafia, and the Kennedys, and one senator's fight to save democracy. Then finally, we'll speak with John Pike, one of the world's leading experts on defense, space, and intelligence policy. He's the director of globalsecurity.org, which is focused on innovative approaches to the emerging security challenges of the new millennium. Pike previously worked for nearly two decades with the Federation of American Scientists, where he directed the space policy, cyber strategy, military analysis, nuclear resource and intelligence research projects. He's also been at the forefront of utilizing satellite imagery to monitor worldwide weapons facilities, and we will discuss what we know about recent warnings that Russia plans to deploy anti-satellite nuclear weapons in space. And before we begin, I would like to thank our listener donors who keep Background Briefing independent, corporate, and commercial-free without paywalls or constant fundraising by making tax-deductible donations to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. As we enter this fact-free and violence-prone election year, with much of the country under the cult-like spell of a deranged demagogue spewing constant lies while inciting hatred and violence, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before our democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now, Dr. Ariel Cohen, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a recognized authority on international security and energy policy and a leading expert on Russia, Eurasia, and the Middle East. He's also a senior fellow at the International Tax and Investment Center, where he heads the Energy Growth and Security Program and is the author of six books, the latest of which is Hour of Truth, The Conflict in Ukraine, Implications for Europe's Energy Security, and the lessons for the U.S. Army. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Ariel Cohen. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Ariel. And you're you're a very close friend of Boris Nemtsov, who was the leader of Russian opposition until he was murdered, uh, literally just outside the Kremlin. And now his successor, if you will, the leader of the opposition, uh, Alexei Navalny, has been uh, murdered in a jail uh, gulag way up in the Arctic Circle. President Biden has held uh, Putin responsible for it, and I think most of the world is also doing so. So I guess it's not a surprise, but it's still shocking. It is shocking. It is painful. I lost not just Boris Nemtsov, who was a wonderful human being. He's one of these people that everybody loved. Uh, but also, uh, I lost another good friend, Galina Staravoitova, 
Uh, Galina at some point was uh, a candidate to be Russian defense minister early in the Yeltsin uh, era. She was a scholar. Um, she was um, an ethnologist. Uh, she studied different ethnic groups and nationalities. Boris Nemtsov was a physicist. He was a physics PhD, was close to Andrei Sakharov, who can be considered uh, the conscious of Russia. And Alexei Navalny had uh, was uh, the best chance Russia had uh, to become a rule of law country. He was a lawyer. He was an activist for shareholder rights. Uh, and I always joke that any normal country, any other country, would co-opt Navalny into its political system. They would have made him deputy prosecutor general for white-collar crime or deputy minister of justice, and he would be fine. Uh, he would you know, ride his hobby horse of fighting against corruption, but the regime was so corrupt that some of the... Um, uh, bigger scandals that Navalny uh, was investigating, uh, they went all the way up to the Kremlin and they wanted to hush him. I heard him speaking in Philadelphia at the legal conference in 2015 and I said, oh my goodness, this man is so brave. This was after Boris Nemtsov was already murdered. Uh, he is telling it as it is, like it is. He is telling truth to power, and today we see that Navalny was martyred. He was martyred for uh, freedom, and he was martyred for Russia, the country he loved so much that after he was poisoned in Siberia and miraculously escaped as he was flown to Germany and was treated uh, in German hospitals for weeks uh, before he recovered, he made a decision to go back to Russia, and he knew what where he's going. Uh, and he died for that. So also, of course, Anna Polaskovskaya, the journalist with the Voya Gazeta, she was murdered on Putin's birthday. There's a whole series. Yes, there was uh, Yuri Shekachikhin, another prominent journalist who was investigating a corruption scandal. He was poisoned and died uh, a torturous death because it took him about three days to die. I think he was poisoned by a heavy metal which is um, a very bad way to go. Mm. So do you think, though, there's the timing of this? What, what do you make of why Putin decided to have Navalny murdered at this particular time? It coincided with the Munich conference at which Vice President Harrison, all European security leaders were in attendance, and so was Yulia uh, Navalny, who also spoke. So yeah, any, Putin... Any... Yeah, Putin doesn't care. Uh, I read this morning a statement by Nathan Sharansky. For those of us who are over 45, uh, remember Sharansky was um, a freedom fighter. He was an advocate for the Jewish emigration out of the Soviet Union, uh, something I'm very close to because my family was denied exit and was stuck there. Um, and uh, Sharansky said he corresponded with uh, and he uh, made a point that in nine years uh, Sharansky spent in Gulag, uh, he was only for about 400 days in solitary. And some of these solitary confinements are uh, at a freezing temperature. So it's very hard to survive. And Sharansky joked with Navalny that you're going to take away my uh, record, uh, the 400 days, because only after two and a half years in jail, you were in solitary for 300 days. So when you say murder uh, of Navalny, having him in that Arctic camp, having him in solitary, uh, having him um, on a starvation uh, ration, uh, because he lost a lot of weight in jail. I, I could see it from the pictures. That was already a slow murder. But the sudden death of a man who was smiling, and sending love letters to his wife just before he died uh, makes me wonder uh, what else happened there. And what is very suspicious is that his mother traveled to the Arctic Siberia and begged the authorities to release the corpse, to release the body. And they are refusing. 
they are refusing for one of many reasons. Either there may be traces of poison or he was beaten up or shot uh, while uh, in uh, the gulag. We don't know yet. Uh, we need an autopsy and we need an autopsy in the West and the family wants to do it. And of course, the Russian authorities don't agree to that. And we'll see if the court, if the body is intact and if at the autopsy, uh, there are no traces of poison. It may be, I'm speculating now, it may be that uh, the security services have a poison that dissipates with time. And after a certain amount of time, um, uh, you cannot find it in regular chemical analyses in a lab. If, on the other hand, they keep refusing releasing the body, well, I would say this is self-incriminatory. So, well, of course, there's been total silence from Donald Trump, who's a huge fan of Putin's. Uh, Mike Johnson, new Speaker of the House, and no word for him. He just blocked aid to Ukraine. Do you think that this in any way will move the needle on shaming the Republicans, the pro-Putin caucus in the Republican Party, which have now, of course, is controlled by Donald Trump? Uh, I'm afraid not, because one of their mouthpieces is Tucker Carlson. And Tucker, uh, in an interview somewhere in the Arab Gulf, I'm not sure if it was Dubai or Qatar, said yesterday, oh, all leaders um, murder somebody, including ours. So making a moral equivalence uh, between the Putin regime that is becoming increasingly authoritarian that a lot of patterns in that regime I see are modeled either uh, after Stalin or after Hitler's Germany, Nazi Germany, uh, to try to make uh, the equivalency, moral equivalency, between our, our democracy and that regime is intentionally, uh, it's the intentional disinformation. It is a moral equivalency that people like Carlson, people like Trump, are trying uh, to uh, distribute. Uh, and I heard it from pro-Trump congressmen here in Washington, D.C., years back. So that makes me wonder where that line, that our leaders murder just like Putin, is coming from. And I, if you allow me, I want to read um, a line from a president of the United States uh, in years past. Quote, to those imprisoned in regimes held captive, to those beaten for daring to fight for freedom and democracy, for their rights to worship, to speak, to live, and to prosper in the family of free nations, we say to you tonight, you're not alone, freedom fighters. America will support you with moral and material assistance, your right not to just to fight and die for freedom, but to fight and win freedom. This is a great moral challenge for the entire free world. Now, guess who said that? Well, I would guess Ronald Reagan. But correct. Who? Correct. Ronald Reagan, mm -hmm. State of the Union, Washington, D.C., February 4th, 1986. Now, do you, in, in your dream, Imagine Trump saying something like that. I cannot. Well, remember Trump in an interview with Bill O'Reilly, he used to be a leading Fox commentator. Yeah, I remember Bill O'Reilly. Yeah, Bill O'Reilly said to him, you know, Putin's a killer. And Trump said, oh, well, we have, we have a lot of killers over here too. I mean, the moral equivalence has been going on for some time. But if you look at Putin's record, and this, I never understood why our, particularly our, our Russian and Soviet specialists why did we treat him like a statesman and not a murderer and a thug from day one? Because that's who he is. I mean, he, he came to p political prominence and, and power through murdering over 300 of his own people, blowing up apartment buildings outside of Moscow. Right. Uh, then you go through the whole list. We've been talking about the people he's killed uh, and had killed, uh, and Litvinenko, the Skripal, the whole, the whole story. It's been clear. But also, the foreign uh, policy, uh, the war in Chechnya, 
in which, according to the late General Lebed, the National Security Advisor, who died under suspicious uh, circumstances in a helicopter crash, uh, over 100,000 people were killed. Um, the Georgian invasion that uh, resulted in very, very mild reaction. I published um, a number of papers at the time saying, if Russia is not stopped by the West uh, after Georgia, uh, the Crimea will be next because the Russians at the time already started giving out the uh, passports, the internal ID papers and citizenship in the Crimea. I, I uh, hail from Crimea. I was born there. And that was um, a, a part uh, of Ukraine after Ukrainian independence. I visited, the last time I visited was 2011. I went to see, you know, older, <laughs> elderly ladies who were friends of my late mother. Um, and I asked them, they were ethnic Russians, and I said, do you feel oppressed? Do you feel uh, Russian language uh, being oppressed like Russia says? And they say, are you kidding us? Um, nobody's oppressing us. We speak Russian. We read uh, Russian media and whatnot. And they were warned at the time uh, the uh, former prime minister of Ukraine, Yulia Tymoshenko, was in jail. They were worried about Yulia Tymoshenko. They identified with Ukraine already at that time. Um, so I said the Crimea will be next. Uh, the uh, distributing or sharing Russian citizenship is a page straight from Adolf Hitler's playbook in Sudetenland in 1938. He gave German citizenship to the Germans in Sudetenland, which was part of Czechoslovakia. And then the tanks came and the West acquiesced in the Munich uh, Agreement of 1938. So there are a lot of parallels. Um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, or as Karl Marx said, history repeats itself uh, once as a tragedy and once as a joke. I think what we're seeing now, it's not a joke, but it's not necessarily exactly what happened in the 1930s. Uh, but my goodness, there's a lot of uh, parallels. So do you think now, finally, uh, we're not going to be world leaders, particularly in the West, are not going to treat Putin as a statesman anymore, but as a murderer? And uh, he, I, I mean, doubt it. Without without being hyperbolic, yeah. I, I mean, the man is evil. Yeah. It's that simple. Right. Right. And, but uh, the trump card, <laughs> pun intended, um, uh, of Putin's is his nuclear weapons. And he um, and his mini-me, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, the former president, uh, are using the threats of a nuclear war uh, to scare the West. Uh, the latest uh, scare is the nuclear-powered anti-satellite weapon that Russia is allegedly planning to deploy in outer space in violation of every um, uh, space, space treaty. treaty yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, what are we doing here? Uh, we are quibbling about Ukraine aid. Um, uh, time after time, people, um, your Repub including Republicans, uh, who understand the threat of Russia, uh, who see uh, today as we speak Ukrainians being forced to abandon a key town um, of Avdiivka, uh, not far from Donetsk, uh, because we are not supplying aid. They cannot buy um, uh, shells, 155 millimeters, 122 millimeters, the ammo that they need to fight the Russians. Um, so people are offering Michael, uh, Mike John, uh, Johnson uh, all kinds of solutions uh, legislatively. And what does he do? He shuts down Congress for two weeks um, to postpone, uh, delay, and obfuscate that issue. On, on orders from Trump, right? But he's a nationalist. And for reasons that I don't understand, they think that Putin is a champion of Christian values, the white race, and, uh, and of course, they share a hatred of homosexuals. Indeed. And uh, what uh, boggles my mind is when you uh, sort of drill down and see who Putin sends to die in the Ukrainian front, you find that he is trying to save Russians, uh, ethnic Russians, especially from Moscow and St. Petersburg, which is the two big cities that matter. Uh, and he's sending Dagestanis, which are a Muslim 
uh, ethnic uh, conglomeration. There are like a hundred different uh, ethnic groups in Dagestan, in the south of Russia. Um, he's sending Chechens uh, after hundreds of thousands of Chechens were killed. And before that, about one third of Chechens were exiled, starved, and ethnically cleansed by Stalin. He is sending Buryats, which are Buddhist um, uh, ethnic group in Siberia. And now, turns out, he is recruiting and sending Nepalese and Cubans to um, the front line. So is he a champion of the white race? If you think that sending non-white people to die in Ukraine uh, is championship, uh, maybe. But I would also say, uh, having met Putin 10 times, uh, he is an opportunist. Uh, he is an authoritarian. He does not believe in dissent. He does not believe in free markets. He did, did not. He blurred the line uh, between uh, swindlers and business people in front of me in a conversation that I was present at. So there are very interesting, um, a very interesting amalgamation mixture of communist and old pre-revolutionary Russian ideas in Mr. Putin's head. What is he trying to do is to formulate some kind of an ideology, which is, by the way, banned explicitly uh, by chapter two of the Russian constitution, which does not allow a state ideology. And Russian state ideology now is ethno-nationalism, uh, uh, genocidal denial of existence of Ukrainians and Belarus people, uh, the so-called white Russians, uh, and um, the primacy of the Russian Orthodox Church, which is totally in Putin's grip and was in the KGB grip for a long, long time since Stalin allowed a little bit more religious freedom during the war with the Nazis. So it is a uh, witch's brew. Uh, Putin is in support of every far-right group in Europe, and not only in Europe, also here in America. Indeed. And that is the most disgusting thing of all, that there's a pro-Putin caucus in the Republican Party. And Donald Trump himself, the leader of the Republican Party, uh, clearly has some kind of relationship with him uh, that is extremely suspicious, if not bordering on treason. But as a former KGB officer, albeit a rather undistinguished one, Putin... If you look at history, what Putin may be up to and appears to be up to is probably the greatest intelligence operation since the Germans put Lenin in a boxcar and sent him to Russia in uh, 1917. In other words, if Putin owns Trump, which he appears to own him, then that's the best way for him to win the war, the only way for him to win the war in Ukraine. And if Trump comes back, then you will have a, the end of the global order in terms of rule of law because you'll have a gangster in league with a wannabe gangster running the United States and all of the, you know, the so-called axis of resistance countries, China, Russia, Iran, etc., they'll have neutralized America via Donald Trump. I mean, well, and this is up to the Americans and uh, including it was up to the Republican Party to vote for an alternative to Donald Trump. I thought Nikki Haley was a good, strong candidate in the spirit of Ronald Reagan, whose quote I just read before on the air. And it looks like the Republicans are making their choice and then the American people will be making our choice who we are going to put in the White House in 2024. And I must add, I am not terribly impressed with Joe Biden's performance, not in Afghanistan, not with inflation, not in being unable to send support uh, to Ukraine, and not with his wobbly support of Israel. I thank you for joining us here today, Dr. Ariel Thank Cohen. you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Ariel Cohen, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a recognized authority on international security and energy policy and a leading expert in Russia, 
Eurasia and the Middle East. He's also a senior fellow at the International Tax and Investment Center, where he heads the Energy, Growth and Security Program, and is the author of six books, the latest of which is Hour of Truth, The Conflict in Ukraine, Implications for Europe's Energy Security, and The Lessons for the U.S. Army. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing why Christian nationalists like Mike Johnson admire Putin. Никакого завтра больше нет. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, James Risen, a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author whose investigative reporting has triggered a series of political firestorms. Among his best-selling books are State of War, The Secret History of the CIA and the Bush Administration, and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power and Endless War, the senior national security correspondent at The Intercept, and a former investigative journalist with The New York Times. His new book is The Last Honest Man, the CIA, the FBI, the Mafia and the Kennedys, and one senator's fight to save democracy. And his latest articles at The Intercept include Don't Normalize Donald Trump and Don't Fall for the Third Party Trick. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Risen. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And since the Obama administration went after you with a vengeance and used FISA, Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, to put pressure on you. What do you make of the fact that House Speaker Mike Johnson tabled the vote on this so-called reform of Section 702, where you've got a bipartisan bid with a lot of Democratic progressives and some conservative Republicans wanting to amend FISA to the point where National Security Advocate Jake Sullivan says if you do that, you essentially make it meaningless. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a strange uh, coalition of uh, opposition because you've got people on the right in the Republican Party who kind of believe that uh, the government has used uh, the surveillance powers to go after Donald Trump. And they don't really care about the actual victims or the actual abuse of the uh of 702, they just have come up with these weird fantasies and conspiracy theories about Donald Trump. And it just so happens that in this case, it aligns with kind of the truth, which is that uh, 702 has been abused over the years. And uh, then you have progressives who oppose the actual use of surveillance against actual Americans, as opposed to the conspiracy theories on the right. And so it's a strange brew of people who have come together on this issue. Uh, And in the end, uh, there's probably more opposition to it today than there has been in other years. Every time that this comes up for amendment or reauthorization, you have the government finds um, terrorist threats that they want to highlight to talk about and say, well, if you don't pass this, um, you know, the terrorists will get you. To me, it reminds me of uh, how when um, every time the uh, school board at a, in a school uh, in, a, in a small town wants more money from taxpayers and they say we need uh, higher tax rates, they'll say, and the voters vote against it, they'll say, well, we'll have to uh, get rid of the football team first thing we're going to do is get rid of the football team. And this is the same playbook. They say, you know, if you don't give us what we want, you know, the terrorists will come and kill your children. And um, so it's, it's an old playbook. um, And no one has been willing to have a realistic debate um, in a meaningful way of how we can um, change this law in a way that would resolve some of the civil liberties uh, issues. No one, the government has never really been willing to have that uh, realistic debate. And um, 
the fact that you have so many Trump cronies who have come up with these weird uh, conspiracy theories about it makes it so that the opposition is not coherent either. So it's uh, unfortunately what usually happens every time there's a reauthorization vote is that um, the government wins by scaring people. And in this case, do you think that the Republican chair of the House Intelligence Committee, by going public last week on Wednesday, warning about some Russian space laser EMP generator space weapon that could destroy all of our satellites, is that in any way targeted over the the FISA vote? Do you think? It could be, words? yeah. Yeah, I, it's possibly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, usually there's two or three things like that that come out every time there's a, a reauthorization debate. Um, I know, I remember a few years ago when, like the day before or a week before the vote, you know, the NSA would go, the NSA and CIA would go to the um, gang of eight, you know, the top officials on Congress who, get classified briefings and they would warn them about terrorist threats. And so it's, it's a, it's, it's an old playbook that they've used again and again. Um, and you know, the problem is, it's part of the larger issue of after, since the, since nine 11 has always been that, um, you can scare a fairly large number of people with terrorist threats and, um, uh, the government has abused that over the years. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if anything's really changed in that political dynamic, whether there's enough uh, opposition to it to uh, force some real change in the legislation. But at the end of the day, this it. is <laughs> right. But at the end of the day, though, Jim, this is this is about the Fourth Amendment, isn't it? And and yeah, they, yeah. I mean, the, the question is, essentially, after 9-11, uh, you know, FISA was passed initially uh, in the 1970s, after the Church Committee revealed, revealed all the abuses of uh, spy powers by the CIA and the NSA and the FBI. And it more or less worked. It had flaws. Uh, and the problem with FISA came as the technology changed and the law didn't keep up keep up with the technology you know FISA was it was uh, created before the internet uh, before cell phones uh, and so you know it's it was really outmoded and instead of going to Congress after 9/11 to say we should update the FISA, uh, the Bush administration secretly just skirted the law and decided to start spying on Americans without any, uh, without using FISA anymore. And so they were trying to get rid of FISA, basically. And ever since then, since you know we revealed that, and uh, since also since the Snowden documents came out, they have done half steps and half measures every few years to try to be able to keep doing what they've been doing, except get Congress to sign on to it. And they've never had a full debate, comprehensive debate about what's really necessary and what is uh, what are the better ways to protect civil liberties. So we're it's, at an it's, it's typical of the it's typical of how Congress and Washington works is that they never actually they really dislike having full-on debates about major issues. They much prefer to have incremental change and get what they can every time uh, Congress deals with something and then move on to something else. And it tends to leave us with these uh, uh, Rube Goldberg laws that don't do what they're supposed to do. Right, but we're in a different world now with this Trump's Republican Party and his influence right. and control over Mike Johnson, the new speaker, uh, where right. they basically do his bidding and right. blocking aid to Ukraine, etc. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Republicans loved, uh, you got to remember, it was the Republicans under Bush who started uh, 
uh, ignoring FISA and illegally started spying on Americans. And it, they continued to love that. They were the ones supporting all the, uh, the efforts by the Bush administration and later by Obama to skirt FISA and to go around FISA and to make changes that weakened FISA. And it wasn't until Trump said, oh, they're spying on me, which was not true, that they really cared about it. They are a cult, uh, and all they care about is this, this idea that there is a woke government targeting conservatives. Is They believe there is a deep state targeting Donald Trump, and that's the only reason they care about this issue. They don't really care about civil liberties or about whether uh, other Americans are being spied on. Right, but they don't care about Putin, do they? And this is the amazing thing. We're at a moment where Navalny's been murdered and President Biden is holding Putin accountable, as most of the world is, and there's a deafening silence from Donald Trump and Mike Johnson, and we know that Mike Johnson's the biggest donor to his 2018 campaign for Congress was Konstantin Nikolaev, a Russian oligarch who happens to be a close friend of Putin's. He's, he actually has a factory that produces the cartridges that are used by the Russian military in Ukraine. And he ran the Russian spy Maria Butina. Uh, now, of course, Mike Johnson was shamed into handing the money back. But nevertheless, uh, the fact that he's holding up aid to Ukraine and saying nothing about Navalny's death and, you know, presumably Mike Turner, the Republican chair of the House Intelligence Committee, he leaked that stuff about the Russian space weapons, uh, anti-satellite thing, right. uh, probably t- to put pressure on Mike Johnson. But, right. I mean, don't these people understand? Uh, they, I know they have stupid conspiracy theories about the deep state, uh, but don't they understand that Putin has weaponized money and that's a part of his hybrid warfare toolkit? And... I don't think they care because I think that they I think that the the Republican base today is really two things. It is white nationalists and Christian evangelicals and both white nationalists and Christian evangelicals in which there is a lot of crossover between those two groups. They love Putin because they have come to believe that Putin is the guardian of, of Russian Christianity. They see him as a Christian fundamentalist. Don't ask me why they believe that, how they've come to that conclusion, but they see Putin as the guardian of the white race and as a uh, Christian fundamentalist. And he has played that up in his disinformation campaign because he knows it resonates with American uh, Christian evangelicals. And so Christian evangelicals have come to believe that Putin's invasion of Ukraine is justified and part of a religious war against the woke Europe, uh, Europeans. They see Ukraine as a product of the EU and of the Democratic Party. And it's this weird confluence of strange conspiracy theories, disinformation, and uh, religious uh, fundamentalism that is driving the, uh, the Republican Party in Congress and the people like Tucker Carlson. That's why he believes this crap. Uh, and so no, until we recognize that there is a power behind this within the Republican base within among Christian evangelicals, and we have to dispel it at its root rather than just blame these uh, Republican leaders. They are following, in this case, they are following the base. If you watch, if you watch Christian evangelical talk, it is totally frightening what they say about Vladimir Putin. And also, there's homophobia that is the glue, right? Right, right. Because Putin is a homophobe, or at least he's raging against uh, gays and lesbians, uh, even though there's a whole gay network inside the Kremlin itself. And then you've got Mike Johnson's obsession with homosexuality. Yeah, and Mike Johnson is a Christian nationalist. 
Right, he, and he's obsessed totally with homosexuality. Yeah. Right. So, right. so just in the last minute, though, I wanted to touch on this other story about the FBI informant, Alexander Smirnoff, which is all blown up in the face of of James Comer and Jim Jordan and Fox News, who've been pushing this idea of the Biden crime family from bogus information that Smirnoff's been providing the FBI with, uh, to the point where he, he was just uh, Smirnoff was just arrested in Las Vegas. I'm hearing from FBI's counterintelligence sources that Smirnoff. It looks as if he is uh, an FSB plant, that this is another Russian information warfare operation, not unlike Konstantin Kalimnik and Manafort in uh, in Ukraine, using disinformation about Burisma. Right. I think the the whole effort to focus on Hunter Biden and Biden's connections in the Ukraine was always part of a Russian disinformation campaign. And this is just the latest aspect of it. And the only people who ever fell for it were people who wanted to believe it. And that's the, that was the, um, the beauty from the Russian standpoint of this uh, propaganda, which they knew that um, they were going to be having a receptive audience in the Republican Party. And the Republican Party of today is not anything like the Republican Party of 20, 15 or 20 years ago. It is a cult of right-wing Christian nationalists who have uh, latched on to Donald Trump as their, as their Lord and Savior, and they believe uh, they want a fascist government. They want something like Russia. They want a dictatorship. And uh, so the, the whether or not Trump becomes president again is an existential question for the United States because he will let Russia run riot. Well, James Risen, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks. And again, I mean, speak with James Risen, who's a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author whose investigative reporting has triggered a series of political firestorms. Among his best-selling books are State of War, The Secret History of the CIA and the Bush Administration, and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power, and Endless War. The senior national security correspondent at The Intercept and a former investor journalist with The New York Times, his new book is The Last Honest Man, The CIA, The FBI, The Mafia, and The Kennedys, and One Senator's Fight to Save Democracy. And his latest articles at The Intercept include Don't Normalize Donald Trump and Don't Fall for the Third Party Trick. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing what we know about recent warnings that Russia plans to deploy anti-satellite nuclear weapons in space. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is John Pike, who's one of the world's leading experts on defense, space, and intelligence policy. He's the director of globalsecurity.org, which is focused on innovative approaches to the emerging security challenges of the new millennium. And he previously worked for nearly two decades with the Federation of American Scientists, where he directed the space policy, cyber strategy, military analysis, nuclear resource and intelligence resource projects. He's also been at the forefront of utilizing satellite imagery to monitor worldwide weapons facilities. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Pike. Glad to talk to you. Well, thanks for joining us, John. And we're getting a little bit more information about what prompted House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Turner on Wednesday to say that uh, the United States is facing a serious national security threat from Russia. The cryptic comments, which irritated the national security <laughs> advisor, Jake Sullivan, and he went on to Turner went on to say that the White House should declassify information about what this new Russian space anti-satellite program's all about. So I guess, as far as I can tell, I've been trying to find out what's going on here, if there is indeed anything going on here. You always have to have that in the back of your mind. 
it looks as if they might be talking about some kind of platform that's nuclear powered that could generate an EMP pulse that would fry all the satellites in space. Is that your understanding about what this is all about? Well, maybe maybe not all the satellites in space, but certainly lots of them. The uh, conundrum here is that there are uh, several ways of doing this, one of which involves a nuclear reactor to provide uh, electricity for the uh, electromagnetic pulse uh, generator. Uh, that would basically be a, a, a mindlessly powerful radar transmitter. Uh, the uh, other way of doing it is with a nuclear detonation that would be sort of an atomic-shaped charge. And it's unclear uh, uh, which of these two technical approaches they're worried about uh, it's particularly unclear where they would have gotten this information because neither one of uh, these projects would have generated a great deal of uh, activity that would be observable by satellites. So they'd have to have a human source inside the Russian program? Is that what you're suggesting? Or- well, the, there's there's something le- there would have to be something leaky over in Russia, and whether it would be a, a human source that's giving them the information or compromised communications where they're overhearing this or something else. But uh, I can understand very easily how uh, the White House would have been concerned about sources and methods uh, giving away the secret source uh, because they would have to have some sensitive source of information in order to get this, because you're, this is certainly not the sort of thing that you're going to see by uh, looking at satellite imagery. But if such a weapon were to be deployed, either the nuclear-powered generator for an EMP pulse or a nuclear explosion, which will, of course, create a massive EMP pulse, and then right been talks about that over the decades that that would be the first nuclear shot that anyone would fire in a nuclear exchange would be uh-huh. a, a, right. you know high altitude EMP pulse but if you did it in outer space you would create massive amounts of space junk and there's already so much space junk up there that it's incredibly dangerous I mean a loose bolt f- flying at 15,000 miles an hour just goes would yeah go but this is World War Five. Okay, this is World War Five, and the future of civilization is at stake. And uh, the attack planners would regard that as being a minor detail. It would be in the footnote. It wouldn't be the above-the-fold headline that day. So are you talking about these sort of dystopian war planners on both sides with no regard for the future of life on the planet? just going well, through their Doctor who, Strange love activities? Of course, it's incredibly obvious, isn't it, Mandrake? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, a, you know, uh, because uh, these weapons exist, these weapons can be made, and uh, people have to think about the unthinkable, as Herman Kahn said. And uh, I think, you know, that's what's going on here. You've got people apparently, seemingly, reportedly, possibly, uh, people on the Russian side who are trying to come up with some sort of war-winning superweapon, and you've got people on the American side who are worried about that. Uh, on both sides, they're doing their jobs. You know, that's what we pay them for. And until we manage to walk back down the mountain and uh, uninvent these nasty things, there are going to be people who are going to be looking at these questions. Well, what do you think is the possible motive then of Mike Turner, the Republican chair of the House Intelligence Committee, leaking this thing, report? Blurting and, it out and yeah. running around telling everybody not to panic. Right. Okay? I mean, right. you know, the best way in the world to create a panic is for a government official to say, don't panic. You know, right. and the uh, late night comedians had a field day with this whole thing. I can, you know, there are at least three possibilities. One of them is that he's genuinely alarmed about uh, this uh, technical development, this new threat. 
the second possibility is I read in Wired magazine that maybe this is somehow or another uh, intended to influence the vote on the uh, uh, national uh, security agency's uh, surveillance program, warrantless wiretaps. I was not able to connect those dots. I understand there's a controversy there, but I didn't see how this issue would influence it one way or the other. It did seem to me, however, that in attempting to elevate the Russian threat and to remind Republicans that the Russians are the bear in the woods, uh, that he was trying to unblock the uh, vote on military aid to Ukraine. That seemed to me to be the most plausible political motivation uh, for raising this. Right, and on top of that now, of course, you have the murder of Navalny, uh, which presumably in a rational world would put a lot of pressure on Mike Johnson, uh, the new speaker, uh, who appears to be taking his orders from Donald Trump. Well, that's the problem. We're not living in a rational world. Okay, the Russians have managed to uh, acquire a degree of influence on uh, the American political system that uh, we haven't seen since we were British colonies. There was nothing like this during the Cold War. The Nazis had nothing like this. But uh, everywhere you look, you see uh, politicians at the top of the Republican Party who appear to be uh, working either for Russia or in Russia's interests, and that's new. And I think that that's what this uh, dispute is about here, because the Republican Party has always had a uh, isolationist wing, which uh, Mike Johnson, the speaker, uh, exemplifies, and it's always had an internationalist wing, uh, right. which uh, Turner exemplifies. Right, but the new wrinkle here is uh, Putin's hybrid warfare toolkit, which a big part of which is weaponizing money, which he distributes via oligarchs who invest in American politics. Yep. In, in the case of Mike Johnson, Konstantin Nikolaev, a Russian oligarch close to Putin, who actually has a factory that produces the cartridges that the Russians are using uh, to fire at sure. the... Uh, at the Ukrainians uh-huh. as we speak, um, he ran the uh, Russian spy Maria Butina, but he also, back in 2018, was the largest donor to Mike Johnson's Mike, congressional Mike Johnson. campaign. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then you've it's got the on top of- the best Congress money can buy. Right, there you go. So- uh, and, and until we do something about campaign finance, uh, you're gonna have all of this Russian money uh, sneaking into the country and uh, influencing the American government to act in the interest of the Russian government rather than the interest of the American people. This ought to be pretty straightforward, but somehow it seems not to be. Right, and then, of course, you have to assume that there's Saudi money and there's Chinese money and Turkish money. Oh, absolutely. Any dictator can get his reputation laundered by an American politician. So... Sure. The other story, since space is your bailiwick here, John, uh, uh-huh. is that the, the U.S. Space Force apparently has basically canceled a multi-billion dollar program to develop a highly classified military communications satellite, and they've terminated this Northrop Grumman program. Is there anything, a connection there to that? Is Mike Turner, his recent uh, cryptic release, about national security threats? Anything to do with that weapons program? Well, I don't know. I mean, certainly the uh, war in Ukraine has uh, uh, demonstrated the utility of space systems in uh, operations here on Earth. It's introduced some new wrinkles. And I think a lot of programs, uh, not just space programs, are being uh, reevaluated in light of that combat experience. I mean, fortunately, big wars like we're having in Ukraine don't come along very often, but when they do come along, uh, people tend to try to understand the implications. And space systems, jamming of space systems, the question of whether you're going to physically attack space systems, their vulnerability to all of those things has been a uh, major factor in 
the Ukraine war. And so I can easily imagine that there might be one satellite program that was going to have a few big satellites, and people would say, no, that's the wrong way to go. We need a program with lots of little satellites. Right. Well, apparently uh, Russia's been conducting experiments with maneuvering satellites that could be designed to attack other satellites, and I that's assume right. that right. the U.S. is doing the same thing, right? We, the U.S. is certainly doing that and makes uh, no bones about it, and the Chinese have gotten pretty handy with that type of activity as well. So right. uh, any any program that relies on a small number of big satellites in high orbit uh, is uh, at risk. You can't depend on it anymore. Right, and the main satellites are up high. The at right. lower altitude, you have all the communication satellites. That's uh, right. But we have more more types of satellites in these low Earth orbits now. We've got more uh, satellites that can detect and track missile launches, and they're looking at uh, new types of uh, signals intelligence satellites in low Earth orbits. So we are in a major phase transition in space generally away from small numbers of big things to large numbers of small things. But just in closing, John, this goes back to the Cold War, mutually assured destruction. In other words, if you pull the plug and start to shoot down each other's satellites and blind everybody, first of all, if you blind everybody, God knows what could happen in a nuclear brinksmanship, since That's nobody right. knows what the hell's going on. And then you blind right. every every bit of communication. Every you know everybody's cell phone, everybody's computer is gone. You basically black out the whole world, and then you start shooting at each other. This is insane. They have to get back to strengthening the outer space treaty, don't they? Uh, that 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 dog's out of the house. Mm-hmm. So that what can be what can be done the then in the last? Well, minute? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, well, I guess you're the wrong guy the to world, ask. The, wor- the, the world was simpler in the Cold War. The world is very complicated right now, and many of the uh, ideas that people had for uh, solving problems during the Cold War don't seem to be much good anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, once I have a plan, I'll get back to you. <laughs> but okay. But right. I'll candidly say that yeah. right now I don't. Well, know. if I'm, I'm, if I'm asking you, if I'm asking you for a plan instead of Jake Sullivan and Joe Biden, I think we're in trouble. Well, we are in trouble. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Appreciate it, John. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Take care. And again, I've been speaking with John Pike, who's one of the world's leading experts on defense, space, and intelligence policy. He is the director of the globalsecurity.org, which is focused on innovative approaches to emerging security challenges of the new millennium. And he previously worked for nearly two decades with the Federation of American Scientists, where he directed the space policy, cyber strategy, military analysis, nuclear resource, and intelligence resource projects at the Federation of American Scientists. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.